Right, Genesis 10. Uh, if you're using the, the Black Pew Bibles, it should be page 10. We're going to read verses 7 through 21, the end of the chapter. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If you were reading along, you're probably like, oh my goodness, what are we getting into this morning? That is the most wild passage. And it is. It is absolutely insane. But actually, it is, this chapter we're studying this morning is one of the most grace-filled, hopeful, trans transformative chapters in all of the Bible. It's, it's kind of a sneaky one that you wouldn't typically pick. Before we get into it, let me just kind of set the stage where we're going you know, we live in a world of commitments, commitments that we make, commitments that are broken to us. All of us probably have made or broken a commitment in the last year. Um, everything from the disappointment and sting of a parent promising Disney World one day and they never took us to Disney World, or the disruptive frustration of someone just leaving your work without notice and now giving you more work to do. Or the broken promise of a text or a call that never came. All of us know what it's like to live in this broken world full of broken commitments and promises. And because we live in a world full of broken commitments, we also have things called contracts. Because we know that people break commitments as well as us. Contracts are necessary because not everyone keeps their word. Our yes is often not enough. And contra contracts elevate things from merely commitments to consequences and penalties if we break them. For example, some of you have rented from Joanna and I before, and if you were to rent with us, we would create a contract. And then the contract would write out stipulations and expectations from us and from you. And if you break them, there are certain penalties. Um, so if you stop paying rent and trash my home, we would eventually, sadly, have to evict you. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at commitments, but something even more 
greater than a commitment, a covenant. Covenant is something we don't use in our culture today. Let me kind of clarify quickly the difference between a contract and a covenant. There's a lot of similarities, but a difference between a covenant and a contract is a covenant has a moral sense to it, a moral sense to it if you break it. If you break a contract, there's usually a penalty. So if you were to leave my home three months early before the lease is up, there should be a penalty. And if you pay that penalty, no harm, no foul. You pay the debt, we're good. We've never done that before. We should have put that in one of our contracts that if you leave early, there's a penalty. We never thought of that. But in this sermon, I thought of that. So we're going to do that now. (laughs) Now, a covenant is different. When you break a covenant, you are fundamentally breaking trust. You're not being a person of your word. There's a moral sense of violation. Most people who get a divorce don't ever think, well, I got some money out of it, so no harm, no foul. No one thinks that. Divorce is one of the violations and breakings of one of the most ultimate covenants, and it is deep and disruptive at the core of our being. And many of us here have been affected deeply or been part of one of those covenant-breaking realities. It's, it's not merely something that you can just cover up with a penalty being paid. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most important covenants ever made in the entire Bible. And what we're going to see is that it is impossible for God to break his covenants. And it is very possible for us to break our covenants. And what we'll see is that God, knowing full well that it is very likely that we're going to break our covenant, that he guarantees that the covenant he makes with us will go through. God guarantees what he promises, and that is really good news. Now, let me remind us where we've been in the last few weeks. Maybe you're a visitor here today, and you're not sure we've been going through the series in the book of Genesis, specifically the life of Abram, not yet a ham, Abram only. And last week, what we saw is that Abram is just on the backside of a great victory. There was this giant war in his area that he had nothing to do with, but his foolish nephew, Lot, living, to, living in Sodom, got swept up. So Abram had to step in, rescue him with some mighty men. It was this huge, amazing, miraculous battle. But now, like in most places of the world, violence begets violence. And so Abram is understandably terrified or scared that he is going to have vengeance upon him, right? He's probably sleeping with one eye open with a target on his back because he just beat all these kings. They're humiliated. They're probably going to retaliate. And we see this beautiful promise last week that Pastor Ross preached. God comes to him in a vision and says, Abraham, I am your shield and I am your reward. God is saying, I got you. You got my protection, the greatest bodyguard of all time, and not just my protection, you have me, myself, as your reward. This beautiful thing. And then afterwards, we see this beautiful picture of Abraham doubting, and though he doubts, God puts his arm around him, lovingly meets him in his cynicism and doubts and confusion, and shows him the stars. That is how many offspring you will have one day. And what we learn is that Abraham believes God takes him at his word, and God counts him righteous. Pastor Ross talked about it. If you missed last week, please go back. If you do not understand God counting Abram as righteous because he believed in faith, you actually don't understand Christianity at all. And you're missing out on some of the most wonderful 
freeing truths in there. So please go back and listen if you missed Pastor Ross's sermon. So we're going to continue this conversation that God has with Abram. Remember, he asked a question. He's doubting. God meets him in his doubts. But now look at verse 7. Okay, so we're finally in our passage. Eight minutes in. And he said to him, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Let me just remind you quickly, Ur is modern-day Iraq. That's where Babylon was, and that also is where the Tower of Babel was. So just remember, the Tower of Babel is where all the nations were scattered. There was a curse. There was division among all nations. And so the beauty is that Yahweh is saying, I'm going to pick you, take you out of the land of, of Babel, And through you, I'm going to bless you and then bring blessing to all these families and nations that have now been divided and cursed. So God is reversing the curse that happened in Babel through a man from Babel. Isn't that cool? But here's a natural question. Verse 8. But Abram said, Oh Yahweh, God, oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It's easy for us to sit as like Monday quarterbacks and be like, man, why are you not believing? But imagine if God came to you and said, hey, I'm going to give you the entire land of New Jersey. You will own it. Like it will be owned by you. That's about the same size of of the kind of promised land in dimensions that Yahweh was promising Abram. That's pretty mind boggling, right? Because there's people who live there too. You're going to own New Jersey. It's understandable for you to have questions and be like, "What? how is that possible, God? And so Abram asked an honest question for the second time, even after God tenderly, patiently met him and answered his first objection and doubt. Both times, he is questioning God's ability and timing and wisdom to bring about his promises. Because remember, we're years into the initial promise, and Abram and his wife, Sarah, are getting older. The biological clock, you know how people are like, oh, our biological clock is ending? It's ended like 40 years ago, right? It's super late. So Abram is understandably like, God, where are you? What's going on? How dare him? How dare him question his creator? And yet, if you read the narrative, God seems to not mind his doubts and his questions. Which leads me to highlight the extreme spectrum in our world. Many of you come from one of these spectrums. On one side, you have the extreme of a fundamentalist, legalistic kind of religious background where doubts are shunned and shamed. You are never allowed to doubt. You're never allowed to question. If you question, you don't have faith. You're probably going to hell. You're not with us. And so people in that tribe stuff their doubts and their skepticisms and their confusions or abandon it because they know they, they've been communicated that their faith has no room for doubts. That's one extreme that some of you, I know your stories, you came from that background. I came from something like that. On the other extreme, this is more modern, we have extreme cynicism and doubt. You, you should doubt everything. It, it is almost as if it's a, a virtue to doubt everything, to question everything. You are actually more intellectually mature the more you doubt and the more cynical you are. And so on this extreme, you are sitting on the outside. Everyone else is bamboozled and deceived, and you're the enlightened, clever one. Nothing gets past you. You doubt everything, and you're the wise one. You are a pseudo-God. You sit on a throne, and you're the arbiter of truth, and you get to pick and choose what is true in the world and what is not, and you're the wise one. And that is a big movement in our world as well. And those are the two great extremes that probably represent a lot of our 
congregation here of, of some influence you've been around. And here's a, here's a beautiful thing. Here's a beautiful thing in the Bible. The Bible never encourages doubts, but it always welcomes doubters. That's huge. And that distinction is important. Hear me again. The Bible never encourages doubts, but it welcomes doubters. Look at the way Jesus relates with Thomas the doubter. He doesn't cast them out. He doesn't reject them. He receives them. He doesn't encourage the doubts. Yeah, doubt that I'm me. You know, he, he challenges it, but he meets him where he's at lovingly and patiently. And that's what we should be as a community. We should not encourage doubts, try to manufacture doubts when they're not there, but neither should we stuff them. We humbly bring them before God and before community, and we wrestle through it. And know that one of the challenges with doubts and cynicism is that doubt and cynicism lies to us saying, you're the only one. No one's ever thought of that objection before in all of human history. And it tends to isolate. You're the only one who feels that way. No one else feels that way. And it can stir self-righteousness. You're the only one who gets things. No one else gets it. And I just want to challenge you, if you're tempted towards that spectrum, come out to the light. Just know that you're not alone, that every temptation is, is common among man. And objections and doubts and pains and cynicism, that's common among our community. Come out of the light and bring, bring them honestly. And listen, if you have those doubts and you try to stuff them away, you'll never have a healthy relationship with God. He knows they're already there. But unless you deal with them and bring them out to the light, it's going to wreak havoc, wreak havoc in the background. Just like if you have deep doubts about a spouse or a loved one, it's going to leak out sideways, even if you try to ignore it. So be honest with God. God welcomes your doubting hearts, and he'll meet you there if you come humbly. And you can pray like the man with a demon-possessed son in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe. Finish it. That's awesome. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I know you enough to know that you're trustworthy, but I just don't get why this. I don't get why this long, this hard, this way. Just be real with him. He can handle it. He's not insecure like his creation, like you and me. He can handle our doubts. Bring it to him. So instead of shaming or rebuking Abraham, he answers his doubt with a covenant ceremony, a physical example. Let's look at verse 9. He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat. And he's going to go down the list of all these different animals. Verse 10, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What in the world is going on here? If you've not read the Bible recently, and if you're just visiting, you're like, this is a cult. What is going on here? Now, as far as we can tell, this was a very common ceremony in the ancient world. So it was like really common. Like, oh, if you cut an animal lately, right? It's like, it's just a thing that people do during covenant ceremonies. Um, it, we actually see the only other time in the Bible we see this in Jeremiah 34, 17 through 19. If you're taking notes, I had to cut it because I didn't have time. Jeremiah 34, 17 through 19 gets into more details. But let me help you understand what's going on. So imagine I'm making a, maybe you want to rent from me, Okay. And I'm pretty extreme now because people keep breaking my contract. So, all right, let's say we're going to get a bunch of animals. And we're going to cut them in half, okay, nicely. Um, and then we're going to create a pathway. We're going to put half their bodies parts here, half their body parts here, okay? 
Good? Uh, And then we're both going to walk through this pathway of dead carcasses as a way of saying we're making a commitment to each other. And if we break, either of us breaks this commitment, what happens to these animals should happen to us. I deserve death if I break this commitment. You can imagine not a lot of people broke their covenants back then. Some of you are wishing that you did that with a spouse, right? Like this is our wedding ceremony. No one's breaking covenants at our church. Want to do that? (laughs) Low divorce rate back then, right? But however, as God often does, he takes something familiar from culture and flips it completely upside down. Let me, some of this is, I'm going to leave some open loops that you're like, what? I don't even know. We're going to tie him in a second. So look at verse 12. So that, that's the, the, the setting is set. Abraham cut these animals and they're kind of just laying out there. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This phrase, deep sleep, does that sound familiar in Genesis? Deep sleep. Who went to deep sleep? Adam. Look at Genesis 2, 21. So the Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a, uh, Adam, upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it to his place with flesh. In both instances, this idea, this Hebrew phrase, deep sleep, God is putting someone to sleep before he does something marvelous. And in both cases, the man cannot take any credit for anything that happened. In Adam's case, he can't wake up and be like, look at what I did with Eve. Whoa, she's glorious. She's smoking. She's awesome. I did this. No, he was asleep. He literally did nothing to contribute to her life. Right? He was just sleeping. And in this case, we're going to see Abraham is sleeping, and God is going to do something marvelous, and he had nothing to contribute to it. So it seems like in his sleep, Abraham receives a prophetic vision, and we see in verse 13, then Yahweh spoke to Abram. Next verse. Almost there. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or like aliens, nomads, visitors in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. There's a lot here, and I have to cut a lot here worth study. But Yahweh is telling Abram that his future nation that's going to come from his line will actually suffer greatly at a hand of oppressors for 400 years. And what's so important for us to remember is that with God, oppression, abuse, injustice never has the final word. It never does. Because look at verse 14. After 400 years of this, likely 70 years of it wasn't so bad because Joseph was alive and they had favor, but 400 years in Egypt, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. God will bring judgment upon Egypt. And if you know history, just tore them down from being the world superpower to being really low. Their abusive mistreatment does not go unnoticed or unpunished. God will always have justice. And if you question there is any area in your life of injustice, hurt, abuse, and you feel like, man, will this ever be paid back? Let the story of the Exodus and other stories throughout history remind you that God is faithful to keep his promises and he never lets injustice go free in his timing. 
He will have the final word. It may not be your timing, but it is perfect timing. Justice will be served. And Israel doesn't just get to go, but rather they're going to plunder the Egyptians as they leave. They're going to absolutely plunder the superpower, just like Abram did Egypt in his life, if you guys remember that. Remember, the Bible is not what just happened, but what always happens. It's a beautiful cycle, and we see this building up and building up. Now, we're going to have to take a minute on verse 16, because it's very unusual and very important to understand. All right? And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Let's look at the New Living Translation. It's helpful here. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. Next. Thank you. Will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. What's going on here? Whenever you study the promised land, especially when you read the book of Joshua, one of the most understandable objections and confusions is what do we do about these conquest stories? Because remember, there's a bunch of people who live in this promised land. It's not like just an empty pasture. There's people, people groups who live here. And God tells them and commands them when they go back after the exodus in Joshua to basically eradicate most of the people groups there. And that probably doesn't set well in your stomach, does it? And it shouldn't. It doesn't set well with me, and it doesn't set well with God. The Bible says two times, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the eradication of those peoples. And yet, we also know that God is a God of love and justice. And he would be neither of those things, love and just, if he let blatant, heinous, wicked injustice to last for long. God does not remove innocent people out of the land who are just trying to live their best life. If you study Leviticus 18, taking notes, it spells out the kinds of sins of the Amorites and the other people groups of that region. region. We are talking about a people who didn't occasionally, but rather were characterized by bestiality, by child sacrifice, by other very deeply disturbing wickedness. God removes people like the Amorites and all other people like them once their sin had become such a stench, so persistent, so irreparable, that it would be a betrayal of justice not to act. Scholar Derek Kidner says this, Joshua's invasion was an act of justice, not aggression. They could have repented all these years, but they didn't. There is such a thing as for you to sin for so long and it's so egregious that it stores up wrath. And eventually God has to pour it out and purge the people who refuse to repent. This is true of individuals. It is also true of countries. But think about this. Over 400 years of patience and steadfastness of Yahweh before he does this. I know that still doesn't fully set well with us, that God would command his people to do such a thing in Joshua. And remember, it's a specific command for a specific time and specific people. It's not for all times and all people. But it's still very good for us to know that there are limits. And God must be a God of justice. This is a warning for us. Indeed, I feel like we have this upside down. 
Look at Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice. These are the saints who have been slain in heaven. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, we have it backwards. Me and my arrogant young self will often sit there as a judge before God. Oh, God, that is so, that's so harsh. That's so unfair, God, that you did that. But rather, we ought to say, God, how is it that you are so patient and merciful? How long, O Lord, before you come and judge? God, help us. Because if you're like me, you can often sit in the judgment seat above God, telling him if he's just or not, or if he's doing a job well done or not. How merciful, God, you are that you delay your justice to give people more time to repent and believe. So back to the narrative. It's about to get weirder. Ready? Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Some of us here with some past with drugs are like, I remember that, right? That's happened before, right? What's going on here? Imagine this, a pot of fire that is smoking and a flaming torch is like hovering and walking between these two carcasses, creating a path. What's going on here? Well, to answer this, let me ask another question. Who is not walking through who's supposed to walk through? Abram. Why? What is Abram doing? sleeping. He can't walk. The path wasn't even prepared yet. They were laid on top of each other. So this, in this covenant ceremony is between who? Abram and who? God. So Abram's not walking, and there's something going through. Who's the other party who's supposed to be walking through? God. Now, how is God a pot and a torch? (laughs) What's going on here? Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where God manifests his presence in smoke and in fire. Let me, yeah, let me give you three rapid fire ones without exposition. Exodus 3, 2. We're going to go fast. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning yet not consumed. Next one. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire. Next one. And now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. So sometimes in the Old Testament, God mediates and manifests his presence in these ways. Smoke and fire and not just peace, but sometimes terrible, dreadful, fearful presence. But what does the ceremony mean? How do we put this together? Well, let me finish this passage And then we'll loop back around, okay? Because I think it'll mean more then. Look at verse 18. So we got a couple of open loops that we're going to have to tie in a second. On the day that Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes into a descriptor of all the ites that live in that land. Okay, I'm not going to read that right now. Good job, Andy, reading those. Okay, let me highlight something. At this point, this is the most specific that God has been with Abram about the kind of land he will inherit. In the past, he was more generic, and he's being more specific. Why? Well, I I think that as Yahweh is increasingly discipling Abram, 
He's revealing more of his heart and plan to Abram. And I think that's what he does with us. As we get nearer to his heart, we get to know him more. He will reveal more of his heart. But in the beginning, it's more generic. It's more general. But this also reiterates something. God is giving him more details about the future promise, and he's still not giving him more details about the journey. And that is absolutely frustrating for us, right? We want to know the destination, and we want to know every turn along the way. And God is still not telling him how it's going to be. He's still not giving him details. He's still not telling you when and how that spouse will come along. He's still not telling you how long you're going to be jobless. He's still not telling you how long until that situation is finally repaired and reconciled. But he gives these promises to Abram, and Abram still has to trust him and hope in him and trust that he knows how to get him there. Now, we're going to loop back around to some of these open loops, because look at verse 18. Yahweh, or the Lord, oh, sorry, verse 18 of Chapter 15, Genesis 15. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. How did he make a covenant with Abram when Abram was sleeping? That's like me saying, I made a covenant with you, but you were sleeping. What? That sounds wrong, right? I don't even know where I'm going with that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, how does that work where you can be sleeping and now you have a binding covenant that you made with me? Abram was sleeping and yet Yahweh made a covenant. So how did he do such a thing? By walking through the animals by himself, alone, and God manifests himself in two different objects, God is guaranteeing this covenant. He's not just guaranteeing the promises will happen, but he's also guaranteeing and taking responsibilities upon himself if any of the promises are broken. And because he knows that we wouldn't keep it, he's saying, put it on my tab. God guarantees what he promises. God is saying this, if I break my promise to not keep my promises to my people, what happened to these animals? Let them happen to me. Then you can say, well, he's God. How can God do such a thing to himself? He's God. He doesn't get hurt. So this is what happens. In the incarnation, Jesus enters the world. The son of God takes on flesh, God himself. And at the cross, Jesus is cut up and suffers as if he broke every promise, as if he's the great covenant keeper, as if he's the one worthy of all the curses, as if he broke every promise you and I have ever broken. Jesus takes it upon his own back and his own body and is bled out So that covenant breakers like you and me can have forgiveness and can be treated like we always walk faithfully through. Jesus invokes upon himself all the punishment curses as if he broke them when it was me that broke them and you that broke them. What God requires, he himself provides. Who is like this God, church? Think about it. I have been so unfaithful so many times in my life. I've broken so many commitments before. Many of you here, I've said I'll do something I, I didn't. I forgot or I just was unloving and I was lazy. But God's like this. I got this, Sam. I will guarantee what I promise. I will pay your debt and I will get you home. Don't ever believe this lie that all religions are pretty much the same. They're all just trying to help people live a good life. No other religion is like this. Or the God himself will guarantee 
The very covenant he makes with his subordinates. Because here's something that you don't, maybe you don't understand. Back then, when, when, when people would make this covenant, some people called this suzerain vassal treaties. Okay, just don't worry about that. But if nerds, you can like that. And what would happen is that the, the, the leader may not even go through the ceremony. If I'm a warrior king, I'm not going through that. You're my subordinate. I just took over you. You make commitments to this promise. I don't need to do that. That's beneath me. You just trust me. It would be a very humble thing for the king, for the, for the leader, for the one who has more authority and more power, more prominence, to then walk through too. That would be humbling. That would be putting himself on our level as a peer, as an equal. Walking through. And so most, most kings would never walk through. How, that, that would be gross. That would be beneath him. And yet in the gospel, God walks through by himself for us. If there, has there ever been such a, a distance between a subordinate and a, what's the opposite of subordinate? Superior? Thank you. Has there ever been a greater distance? And yet he walks through by himself the ultimate act of love and humility. It, it, remember the whole rental situation in my house? It would be like this. Imagine you rent from me, and then you stop paying rent, and you sabotage my house, and as a consequence, I move out, and you inherit the house. That's how backward it is. That's getting a little glimpse of how backwards and how upside down and how absurd the gospel is of what God would do for us. Church, marvel at this God. Any unbelievers here, any skeptics here, marvel at this God who would die for you. And if you want this kind of love relationship, you can with this loving God who's made every way possible for you to be forgiven and to enter in a love relationship with him. So if that's you, I'd love to pray with you or any member around you who's a member at APC, we'd love to pray with you. Now let me bring two quick applications for the rest of us. On the screen, imitate God as a promise keeper. We are all called to imitate God. And what is God? He's a promise keeper. He does what he says he will do. And in our culture, we can always find a reason for us to not do what we said we'll do. I can't tell you how disturbing it is and how many times over the years that I have been so flippant about my word and broke my word so easily and how many times in church people have said they'll do something and they just don't even care to keep it. Word, our word has, is virtuously, virtually, 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 thank you, missing. I want to challenge us, church, as our process of becoming like our Father, imitating our Christ, to be a person where your yes is yes and your no is no. And you don't need to add qualifiers. Like, I swear, I promise. This. When you say yes, my hope would be I can take you at your word. And why? Why can you do that? You can't do that on your own. I can't do that. Is when we spend time with our Father, who is the promise keeper, it increasingly transforms us to be like him and faithful like him. Parents, be slow to agree to things that you'll do to your kids unless you've really thought that you'll do it. You are setting an example for your kids what God is like if he's a promise keeper. Here's my second application, church. Look for our ultimate home. And I'm going to close with this so the worship team can get ready to come up when I finish this scripture. This is the first clear sign to Abraham that he will not be alive when he inherits the land. 
because there's going to be a long detour. This is the first time Abraham is told clearly that he's going to die before all these promises are fulfilled. But that's okay, because Abraham was living by faith and ultimately not living for this promised land. He was living for a better land. Let me show you Hebrews eleven thirteen. It's long, but worth it. I was going to ask you to read it, but there's just no way. <laughs> all these people, talking about different Old Testament saints, died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they call their own. If they longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is what you and I have for for us as well. We, we can all see a glimpse, uh, a glimpse dimly, far away for our heavenly, our permanent, our ultimate home. And that can sustain us today when we feel so far from home. When we feel like the promises are so far and slow. Church, lift up the gaze of your heart to see the heavenly country that is to come. When Jesus comes back and makes all things new and we get to see him face to face. And we're finally in our forever home. So hang on, church. The promise may be far, but they will come soon. He has guaranteed that it will come to pass. He has staked his name. Indeed, not just his name, his life, that it will come to pass. So let's trust him afresh today and take him at his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a promise keeper, that we can take you at your word, and that though all of us here regularly break our word, that we are fickle, that our yes is often not yes and our no is often not no, you are not like us. Praise be to God that you're not like us. And thank you, God, that you are not just faithful to your word. You're a God who will pay the penalty that, you, that we deserve. Who is like you, God? Who is like you, O Lord? Who is gracious like you? Who is humble and condescending uh, like where you would come down and, and walk through the path of death, the path on, on the Via Della Rosa, And suffer on Calvary for us when we deserve to be on that cross. When we have broken promises. You've never broken a promise and yet you suffer like you broke everyone. Who is like you, O Lord? Help us marvel afresh at the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. And the grace of our God. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know the grace and the love and the power of God, would you reveal right now and draw their hearts that this is whom they belong to. This is whom they exist for. This is whom that their heart is longing for. Thank you, Lord. And Father, if there's anything I said that was an error, that did not represent your character or your word or your truth, either in content or in manner, please correct me and let only your word shape us. Do a work in our hearts now during this, the rest of this gathering. In Jesus' name, amen.